Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. We are going to continue to look at glory and redemption to see the glory of God at work in the Old Testament and revealed in the Old Testament and how all of the Old Testament points to and brings us to redemption in Christ Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to the book of Leviticus. We're going to be looking at, and this is going to be a dangerous thing today, but we are going to be trying to look through the whole of the book of Leviticus because Leviticus is one of those books that reveals to us Lots of amazing things, but if we get into the details and we get bogged down, we could be in Leviticus alone for months and months because there's lots of stuff here. But we want to look at the big picture of Leviticus because it helps us to understand something about God himself and about how we are to relate to him and about our need for something more than just our own good works. And so just to bring us up to speed again, Last week, we looked at the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, those rules, those ten rules and standards that God gave to His people from the mountain of Sinai. He actually spoke down to them. All of the nation of Israel heard these ten words, that they're not supposed to have any other gods, no idols, no misusing of God's name. They're supposed to remember the Sabbath. They are to honor their parents, not murder, not commit adultery, don't steal Don't commit uh, perjury or no false testimony and no coveting of anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so this was the foundation of the law that God gave. And then he went on to expand it and give more details because all of us know as soon as there is a rule, everybody tries to find the loopholes to that rule. And then you have to move to, okay, here's how that rule applies in this circumstance. And Leviticus moves us to a place where we get more detail about how to interact with God. But after giving these Ten Commandments from the mountain, the Israelites cry out and say, God, we don't want to hear your voice anymore. You're scary. Just tell it all to Moses. And so Moses goes up and receives the rest of the law and instructions for a tabernacle or a tent in which God will meet his people. And so they they end up, after the incident with the golden calf that we talked about last week, They end up building this tent, and after the building of this tent, here is what happens. Uh, Here at the base of Mount Sinai, the cloud, a cloud descends from heaven, covers the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, this special tent that they built to uh, meet with God. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so what happened here is that God wanted to be able to have a place in the middle of the camp where he could meet his people. And his holiness, his glory descends upon this tent. The problem now is that no one can go into the tent because God's glory has rested on it and his glory is overwhelming. His glory is such that Were anyone to come and meet him, they would instantly be struck dead in his presence. Not because he wished them dead, but his glory would be so overwhelming 
that they would be struck dead by his purity and his holiness. And so Leviticus chapter 1 begins with this. It says, the Lord, Then the Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them. And then God goes on to tell Moses the things that he wants him to speak to the Israelites. Now, a couple of things to see here. The glory of the Lord, we find out from the end of Exodus, is within this tent. He is ready to meet his people, but no one is able to go in because he is so holy and so perfect. And his people are tainted by their sin and disobedience. And so God calls Moses to the front of the tent and speaks to Moses from the tent of meeting. So it's this picture of the tent is here. And Moses gets called to the front of the tent and God speaks and Moses has to stand outside and listen to God speaking from the tent because Moses is unable to go in. Moses' own sin, Moses' own disobedient choices, Moses' own impurities make it impossible for him to enter into the tent. And so God from within begins to tell Moses, here's how you And the priests will be able to enter the tent and represent the people before me. And so God begins to speak to Moses. And in the book of Leviticus, this same phrase that God speaks to Moses and tells him what to tell the Israelites or what to tell the priests who will represent the Israelites before God. It it happens here 36 different times where God speaks to Moses from inside the tent. So 36 different little discourses where God tells Moses, here's what it will take for you to be in my presence. Here's what I expect of my people so that you might be made holy, so that you can come and worship me intimately and not from a distance. And so the whole book of Exodus, excuse me, Leviticus can be broken down into just a few segments just wanted to make sure you guys could see it. It looked really small back there. So it's, it's pretty okay. The words are a little small. If you have to move to the front so you can see better, please do. Uh, here is what the book of Leviticus includes. And you can see it's all kind of color-coded in grays because I don't like real color. I like black, white, and very dark gray. And so uh, here I am uh, doing my best to try and color-code it a little bit. But what we see is at the very beginning, at the very end of the book of Leviticus... God includes teachings on rituals for his people. So starts beginning and then goes to the end, rituals for his people. And then the next step in, God talks about the people who are going to be tasked with the job of performing those rituals and his expectations for them. So then we have the priests and their job in the rituals and then their special holiness expectations God wanted the priests who would represent his people to himself to be specifically more holy in the things that they did than even the people had to be. And then the next step in is we have two different sections on holiness for God's people. Expectations that God has for his people. It includes things like the food code that most of us are familiar with, eating kosher, and how to deal with diseases and hygiene and cleanliness. And it also moves into bigger moral pictures. And then right smack dab in the middle of all of it 
is a teaching on a special day that God wanted his people to institute called the Day of Atonement. And so we're going to talk through the whole book of Leviticus, focusing on these different segments, starting with the ritual at the front and the back in the book, and then moving into what God has for the priests to do, and then God's expectations for his people, and then finally, that Day of Atonement that was so critical to the life of the Israelites and what it means for us today. The book of uh, Leviticus ends really with a charge or a call to obedience in which God tells his people, if you will obey, I will bless you. And if you do not follow this law, if you disobey and refuse to walk in these standards, you will be judged and ultimately exiled from the land that I seek to bless you with. And so a a commentator, his name is Jay Sklar, he uh, wrote in the uh, Tyndale Old Testament commentary, he says that the book of Leviticus is really, in its entirety, God's instructions on how to live as the holy priestly kingdom of the holy and heavenly king. The whole book of, Levi- of Leviticus is for God's people to understand how they're supposed to live in light of their special relationship with God. And so, as we read through Leviticus, we can understand what God is trying to to communicate. Not, here's rules, you have to follow them because I'm mean, but rather, here are standards that my special and beloved and holy people set apart to worship me and represent me before the whole world. Here are standards by which I need you to live so that we can remain in relationship together. And so first, let's look at the the rituals, starting with the beginning of Leviticus, chapters 1 through 6. God specifically, through Moses, tells his people of five different offerings that they're supposed to participate in, in the course of their worship toward God. So you can open up and you can kind of follow along and look through it. Uh, You just scan. We're not going to read a lot of verses at this point, because we got to cover concepts before we get to the application for us. So for you to understand the sacrifices that had to be made in the course of the Israelites' lifetime in order to stay in right relationship with God, God gives Moses detailed explanations of each of five different types of offerings. The first, in Exodus chapter 1 verses 3 through 17, and then later in 6, 8 through 13, when God is telling the priests what their job will be, God tells his people they should be offering up to him a burnt offering. Now, what is key to a burnt offering is that in the end, it all gets burnt. Now, that may seem like, how does this happen? I mean, why would a burnt offering be completely burnt? Well, that's what it is, right? It's a burnt offering. So here's, here's the deal. is a burnt offering when we read of it in the Old Testament. It's an animal offering that was meant to signify a complete dedication to Yahweh. And it was supposed to provide cleansing from sin for the person who offered it up. Now, what's interesting about all of these animal sacrifices is sometimes we get in our mind... That an animal sacrifice was such that you would just bring your animal, you'd hand it to the priest and say, all right, take care of it for me. But instead, what the Old Testament tells us 
is that an animal sacrifice was to be brought to the tent of meeting and later to the temple. And the person who was offering the sacrifice was to slaughter the animal. And so when you were bringing a burnt offering to God, you didn't just hand off this nice animal and say, take care of things for me, priest. You instead had to yourself dispatch the animal and had to separate out its components in order to make the offering. In the burnt offering, the hide would have been removed because that was burned outside the camp and taken care of. But all the rest of the animal would have been offered up on the altar and burnt in its entirety. And so your job, if you were coming to offer a burnt offering, is to dispatch and dismember and skin the animal in order that it might be presented as an offering. So do you, you get a picture, hopefully very quickly, of the fact that to come into the presence of God, to, to even dedicate yourself to Him and say, I worship you, I am yours, I follow you with all of my heart, it required two things. A sacrifice of a life and an intimate involvement in that sacrifice so that you might simply worship God. Now, once again, I mentioned the whole animal would have been burned, minus either the hide, if you were offering up a, a bull or a ram or a goat or a sheep, or, a, or the crop if you were ordering up, excuse me, offering up a bird. If you were poor or, or uh, something like that, you could offer up just a bird as a burnt offering. And it wasn't always required that you had to bring any of the big animals that are listed in Scripture. So this first offering is one that's just one of dedication. It's one that you should make anytime you want to be declaring your desire to follow after God wholeheartedly. So this is something that was not required of you to offer on a regular basis. But if you were faithful, it would be something you might want to uh, offer up on a regular basis. The second offering we have is the grain offering. It's, it's detailed in Leviticus chapter 2 and uh, chapter 6. And, and this grain offering would have been you were able to bring either grain or bread mixed with oil and incense. And this offering, it, it was supposed to accompany other offerings most of the time. Or it could be a sin offering, which we'll talk about later, for if you were very poor. But what happened is you would bring grain or bread and a, a small portion of it would be burned on the altar with the oil and the incense. And then the rest of it would be consumed by the priest who was representing you before God and making the offering on your behalf. Or sometimes you would eat the rest of it yourself during participating in this next type of offering called the fellowship offering. So sometimes in the grain offering, the priest would consume what was left. Sometimes in the grain offering, it accompanied a burnt offering and you had with it then together a fellowship offering. In Leviticus 3 and chapter 7, detail it. It's an animal offering given in response to an answered prayer, a completed vow, or an unexpected blessing. In other words, if you had offered up a prayer and said, Oh Lord, please make it rain this week. And God answered your prayer. It was your prerogative in an act of worship to bring to God 
a fellowship offering. It wasn't required, but it was something you could do. To bring a fellowship offering to say, God, thank you for answering my prayer. Now what's interesting is this fellowship offering, you still would have had to, on your own, dispatch the animal, dismember the animal, and offer up the appropriate parts of the animal for a sacrifice, which would include some of the best parts of the animal, according to what Scripture tells us, all the fatty parts. And some of you are like, oh, that's terrible. Why would you want that? And others of us are just like, oh, no, the fatty parts? I mean, I, I like steak, but you know what I like more than just steak is that tail on a ribeye, grilled, ju- oh, and some of you are disgusted by me, and it's like, man, that is so good, that fatty anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's the good part to me, and it's the good part to the Israelites as well. The, the fatty, the richness of the animal, those things that you would want because they were just rich in nutrition, and the inner organs that were meaningful and nutritious, they were all to be sacrificed on the altar. A portion of the animal would go to the priest who made the sacrifice on the altar, and then the remainder of the animal you would take and you'd prepare it that day and you'd share it with your friends and family in a feast in celebration of what God had done for you. And so this fellowship offering is not just an offering where everything goes away, but instead it's one where you retain some of the animal that's been sacrificed and you invite your friends and family and you rejoice together in the blessing that God has poured into your life. And so these first three offerings, the burnt, the grain, and the fellowship, they are all optional offerings that are to be offered up as acts of dedication and thankfulness to God. But these next two offerings are critical to the life of every Israelite. In Leviticus chapters 4 and 5 and 6, God details the sin offering. And the sin offering was an animal offering given to cleanse from the guilt of unintentional sin. In other words, most of us go through the day and we do our best to live rightly. But the truth is that we will also sin unintentionally. We will do things that are an affront to God's glory. We will participate in things that are sinful and yet never meaning to. And this sin offering is an animal offering that would be given to cleanse from the guilt of unintentional sin. And it was something that as soon as you realized you had sinned, you needed to offer up a sin offering. And what happened is you would slaughter the animal, you would dispatch it, you'd dismember it, you would offer up the appropriate pieces. And, And for this sin offering, all the best parts of the animal, once again, the juicy tender bits and the fat were all burned up and offered to God. And then the remainder was consumed by the priest. Or, if it was a sin offering for a priest or a leader, then the remainder would be burned outside the camp. Now, what's interesting is how God actually made a provision in many of these offerings for two things. Sin or worship and the provision of food for the priests. And so this sin offering was something that needed to be offered up on a regular basis, as well as this last offering, a required offering, a guilt offering, 
Leviticus 5, 6, and 7, different sections of them reveal to us that the guilt offering was an animal offering given to cleanse from guilt of dishonoring the Lord or His holy things or wronging a neighbor. So if you took something from a neighbor, you would have to give a guilt offering. If you had dishonored the Lord by doing work on the Sabbath, actually that could earn you death, but, but if you had dishonored the Lord, you had to offer up a guilt offering. And not only were you supposed to offer up an animal, but you were also supposed to restore what had been, you had taken and give an extra 20%. So if you stole from a neighbor, if you took grain from them, you took an animal from them, you had to restore to them an animal and 20% of its value in silver. So here, the guilt offering, the dedicated portion, the juicy bits were burned up on the altar as a sacrifice to God. And the remainder of it would always be consumed by the priest. So we have these five different offerings that are supposed to become a regular part of the life of God's people. And every one of these offerings, in order to both worship and be brought back to peace with God because of sin and guilt, all of them, save for the grain offering, required the death of an animal. And, and when you're dealing with sin and guilt, an animal must die. And its blood was to be spread on the altar. Its juicy bits were to be burned up and, and given to God. And so the children of Israel, God's people, and hopefully us in learning from them, we begin to understand the price of walking into the presence of God. What it costs is that sin must be washed away. And the only thing that can wash away sin, the only thing that can atone for the wrongdoings that we have committed is the blood of one who is pure. In this circumstance, it's an animal. And we'll talk more, of course, about our circumstance. The second part of ritual there at the end of Leviticus in chapters 23 through 25, it's really about the ritual that God had for his people that included holy days and proper worship. And you can read for yourself and see that most of this is, is encompassing a few of the high holy days that God institutes for his people, including the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, um, the, 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 the New Year, the, the Passover, reminding them to partake of that properly. And so we see the, the ritual that God would have for them. And now that we move past in the ritual, we start looking at these things in the center here, the, the dark gray boxes, the things that God has for the priests. And Leviticus chapter 6 through 9, the responsibilities and the roles that the priests have in serving God and helping his people to be right with him through the sacrifices that they're supposed to offer. Okay. Sorry, somebody's Siri just told me to wait. I don't... Uh, that was weird. Okay, uh, so anyway, <laughs> um, so these priests that God has instituted, they're supposed to be the ones making the offering, and, and Leviticus chapter 6 through 9, it offers up for us a clear understanding of the roles of the priests in the sacrifice rituals. And so we, we see that, that God had a specific job for these priests. And then as, as we look at the, the next little bit in this story of the priests, 
we see the history of two men who were named Nadab and Abihu. And you, you might think, what funny names? Well, of course, they're old names in the Old Testament. They're going to be funny. But Leviticus chapter 10 tells us their story and the story of what goes on in their life. Now, Nadab and Abihu, we read earlier, are sons of Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, who is given, Aaron is given the job of being the lead priest for all of the people of Israel. And his sons are given the job, given the job of serving as priests under him. And so God has already taken the time to give details on how the priests are supposed to do their job. They had spent a few days, the previous chapter tells us, setting themselves apart. They had been ordained as priests. They had been set apart as priests. And they should be ready to do the job of being priests faithfully. And we get to chapter 10, and starting in verse 1, Scripture tells us this. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had commanded, had not commanded them to do. So here's, here's, it's pretty simple. These two guys, they're starting their first day on the job as priests. Just the day before, they had been ordained, they had been prayed over, set apart. Now it's time to get started, and they walk in, and they take one of the elements of worship, the fire pan, they put fire in it and then they put incense on it because incense is an integral part of the worship of God. And then he strikes them dead is what it says. Why? Because they used the wrong fire. They used the wrong fire. There were rules and standards for them, and, and they walk in and they use fire. Some of your translations might say strange fire, uh, unauthorized fire, um, unholy fire. They violated the command of God in this simple little area. And, it, and then fire came from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This simple little infraction of using the wrong lighter to light the incense as they walked into the presence of God and they are struck dead with fire from God. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me and I will reveal my glory before all the people. In other words, God is so serious about his holiness, his, his standards, that when these two men who are priests set aside to lead the people in worship toward him, when they do something so small as just using the wrong fire to start the incense for the day, God strikes them dead. And why is that? Because God wants everyone to understand his holiness. God's want, God wants everyone to understand his glory. And not to be afraid of it in the sense of cowering in the corner and thinking he's unapproachable, but in, in, in a different way of fear, knowing that they must respect his perfection. They must respect his holiness. 
And the things that they think are small, oh, I'll just use, I'll use this lighter over here. I'll use this fire over here to start the incense for today. I won't worry about the standards that God has given to me. I mean, what's it matter? It's just incense, right? God is so serious about even the smallest of things when it comes to his holiness and his perfection and his glory that when the priests, Nadab and Abihu, when they violate his holiness, he strikes them dead. Now, many of us can already start making that own, our own application on that, and we'll talk about it more as we go. But understand that two sons of Aaron set apart as priests are struck dead for the slightest infraction against God's holiness. And Aaron is actually commanded to remain silent. And he's told, you can't mourn your sons. They violated my holiness. And you cannot defile yourself by mourning for them or touching them or even attending their funeral. And so others had to do it and others mourned for them. But God essentially says to Aaron and the other priests, they deserved this. And there's nothing you should do in response to it other than accept what's happened. God is so serious about his holiness about his holiness. And he is serious about the holiness of those who would come and approach him. Later in the book of Leviticus, God gives even more details about how the priests are supposed to live. More details about how they're supposed to be set apart. How they're supposed to follow specific standards, including who they marry. Including how they live, what foods they eat, where they go, what they participate in. Priests were not allowed to attend funerals for just anyone. They could only attend the funeral of close family members. Why? Because they weren't supposed to interact with death. They were set apart and holy to God. And so they had to make a sacrifice in their life, not attending the funeral of a close friend or a distant relative, but only those who were immediately in their household. And that's just a, a small and simple indication of how serious God takes the holiness of the people who will approach him. And God doesn't just take the priest's holiness seriously, but we can look and, and he's actually got very intense and meaningful codes about the holiness of the standard people, the people of the street and in the seat. In Exodus chapters 11 through 15, God gives his people a purity code. And some of us are familiar with some of these. You can look in chapter 11 when it begins to tell God's people what they can and cannot eat. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 3 says this, You may eat any animal with divided hooves and that chews the cud, but among the ones that chew the cud and have divided, or have divided hooves, though they chew the cud, do not have divided hooves, they are unclean for you. And What? Uh, so you can eat some of these animals, but not all these animals that look like these animals only the specific ones who do both of these things. But if they only do one of the things you can't do, you can't eat them. What? Okay, so here, here. well, what, what does that mean? Hyraxes, though they chew the cud, do not have hooves, they are unclean. Hares, though they chew the cud, do not have hooves, they are unclean. Pigs, though they have divided hooves, do not chew the cud, they are unclean. Do not eat any of their meat or touch their carcasses, they are unclean for you. This is what you may eat from all that is in the water. So God begins to give a list of what they can eat from the water, what they can eat from the air, what they can eat from what walks on the ground, whether a certain type of insect is clean or unclean, and whether or not they can eat it 
Ah, no thanks. Anyway, um, but, but God is so serious about his holiness and the holiness of his people that he wants them to understand even what you eat matters. He tells them how to deal with mold and mildew. And some of us are like, well, yeah, you just rip it out and get a contractor, right? But no, I mean, God has specific standards about if your clothing has mold in it, on it, here's what you have to do to be able to clean it and you be made clean so you can come into my presence. If a house has mold, here's what you have to do for the mold in the house. If, if leather has mold on it, you know, and everybody wants to keep that cool leather jacket from their childhood, when that leather has mold on it, you say, here's what you have to do to clean it and here's what you have to do to be able to wear that jacket into my presence. God was so serious about his holiness, he, he was concerned about body fluids and, and interacting with them. And that's all the further I want to go into that. If you want the details, read Leviticus for yourself. Now, is God really concerned about your body fluids and mold? Not on one hand, because they're just part of life, Right? But he wants us to understand. He wanted his people to understand. His holiness was so perfect, so pure, that you can't even drag the normal, everyday experiences of life into his presence without separating yourself from them. All of the things that we experience of life that are good and blessings God rejoices in with us, but all of those things that are part of the curse, the death, the mold, the mildew, the, the things that we want to stay separated from, God says you need to purify yourself from those before you even come into my presence. That's what he says to his people. He takes his holiness so seriously that he was concerned even about things like mold and mildew on your fabric. Now, you might ask the question, well, what is it that makes a cow clean and a rabbit unclean? What is, it that, what is it that makes chicken acceptable, but pigs not? You know, what, what is it that makes the distinction there? And some of us, we have begun to try and imagine why God made some of these cleanliness rules or these purity rules. And we say, we get really astute. It's like, well, you know, there used to be a time where you really had to worry about trichinosis with pigs. And God was just trying to keep his people from having trichinosis. And we try and find an explanation for why something is clean or why something is unclean. Why is mold an unclean thing or mildew an unclean thing? Well, God wants his people to be clean. So cleanliness is next to godliness. And, and so we, we make up these explanations. But the truth is, what is it that makes some things clean and other things unclean? It's the simple command of the Lord. This is unsatisfying in some ways, but the truth is, it's because God said so. If God says, to come into my presence, you must wear a rainbow wig and a clown nose, or I will strike you dead. What are you going to do to come into his presence? We're all buying rainbow wigs and clown noses, aren't we? If we really want to be in his presence, we're going to follow the rules no matter how insane they seem to us. Why? Because this isn't about us or his people so much as it's about his holiness, his perfection. And that mankind cannot approach his holiness and his perfection without abiding by his standards. And we see it with Nadab and Abihu, right? They just use the wrong lighter for the incense and he strikes them dead. 
This is how serious God takes his holiness. The, the, the next section, Leviticus 18 through 20, uh, is another section of, of holiness standards. But really, God is trying to get people not from a point of what they eat and what they wear being important, which he already told them, but also what you do with your life is important. Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 4, here's how God starts this section. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, I am the Lord your God. We see this phrase repeated over and over again in the book of Leviticus. I am God and I'm your God. And because I'm your God and you want to be with me, I want you to do something specific. Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live or follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You must not follow their customs. You are to practice my ordinances and you are to keep my statutes by following them. I am the Lord your God. I'm God. Here are my standards. I'm God. And I'm your God. And I'm for you. And I love you. And I want you to be my people. But you cannot come to me looking like everybody else in this world. You have to follow my standards and my statutes. Because I'm your God and I'm holy. And, and this, this section contains all of the, the, the rules and regulations that many of us think of when we think of Leviticus. Chapter 18 goes into detail about some of the, the pagan practices that are supposed to be avoided, including who you're intimate with. And it excludes most of your family members. And, and this, is, this is, for many of us, this is a great time of rejoicing, right? This is the first time in Scripture where we're told, all right, so most of your family members are off limits. In fact, pretty much all of them. And we go, finally, God, why couldn't you have said that back earlier in Genesis? But we understand this is the first time God says, I don't want you to look like anybody else anymore. I want you to be set apart and special. And so I want you to be aware of the fact that your intimacy matters who you're intimate with, and in what way it matters. And so we see then rules about how to eat, and, and we see rules about uh, being kind and, and not harboring hatred. We see rules and standards about who to worship. We even see some of the ones that maybe raise some questions, like Exodus, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27. You are not to cut off the hair at the sides of your head or mar the edges of your beard. Why is that? Ladies, I'm, isn't it nice you don't even have to worry about your beard? Some of you do. Okay, well, I was just saying. Um, so what, my, why does God tell, tell Moses to tell the Israelites, don't cut your hair in a specific way. Don't trim your beard in a specific way. Why does he tell him that? And some say, well, because he really likes long beards and curls down the side of your hair. No, it's because the pagans practiced certain haircuts and beard trimmings to set them apart according to the God they worshipped. And God says, don't follow their style. Instead, let it grow so that everybody knows that you worship me. We look at the next one. Uh, you are not to make gashes on your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. And some go, oh, so no tattoos, right? No, no, no. Here's what you need to understand. The tattoos and the gashes were part of the pagan celebration. Now, you may be a pagan and have tattoos nowadays, but that's just because you like your motorcycle and you're a tough guy. 
right? But, but nowadays, tattoos are not necessarily religious symbols. They are just part of our overall culture, and many of us have used them to express our faith. In fact, some of the great, greatest ways to open up a door to witnessing can be a tattoo with the right people. Now, that is not go get a tattoo. That is to say, don't judge those with tattoos because this is a cultural law. There are other ones, and we could talk more about it. If you're reading through here and have a question, hit me up later this week. Uh, Email me, call me, message me. We can get together. We can talk about Leviticus more. But the point of all of these standards that God gives is that he wants his people to be different. And these are the standards he gives, not just because he's arbitrary, not just because he likes rules, but because he needs his people to be holy and pure to be able to come into his presence. And part of that holiness and purity is this once-a-year ritual that God gives his people called the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 17 details the Day of Atonement, and it gives, excuse me, chapter 16 is what that should say. Don't know why I put 17. The Day of Atonement, it's, it's meant to cover and to wipe away and to reconcile all the sin from the people of God one day a year so that they can start fresh every day that one day a year. And what's supposed to happen is first the priest, the high priest is supposed to offer a bull for his own sin, a ram for a burnt offering before God, and then on behalf of the people, he's supposed to offer two goats and one ram to atone all of the people of their sins. In other words, to see that everyone in the country's sins are forgiven. And here's what happens. He, he offers the bull and the ram for himself. And then the two goats, one of them is killed so that its blood might be shed and it might be burnt on the altar. The other one, they pray over it and confess all the sins that they know of on the, of the country on that other goat take it out, kick it out into the wilderness, and let it wander off. So that it's a picture of sin being both washed away and cast out of God's people. That other goat, you know what it's called? Scapegoat. Yeah, some of you guys paid attention in some class. The scapegoat, the goat on which all of the blame is placed, and it's cast out from the people. And God says to his people, here's what I want you to do. I want this to be something you do all the time. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the alien among you who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. One day a year, the day of atonement, sacrifice was made so that every Israelite might be clean before God and able to enter his presence. It's a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statute. Anybody uh, who reads your calendar, actually looks at your calendar, know what this is called on your calendar? Yom Kippur. Yom Day Kippur Atonement. The Day of Atonement. So if you're one of those nerds, you actually read the weird holidays that come up on your calendar. This is Yom Kippur. It's still celebrated today, though they do not offer sacrifices like this. Instead, they offer other sacrifices of food and time in order to be made right with God. So we have this this structure that God has in Leviticus, and all of it is centered around bringing his people into his presence. 
helping them to understand his holiness, that he is a holy and perfect God with holy and perfect standards, and they must be kept in order for you to walk with him. But when you can't keep them or you fail to keep them, something has to die to make you clean. Something has to give its life in order to purify you so that you can come into my presence once again. And then God calls all of his people to obedience in chapters 26 and 27. And he says, if you will obey those sta- these statutes, if you will follow these rules, and when you can't, you sacrifice in order to be made right, I will bless you. But if you disobey these standards, if you reject them, I will judge you, and ultimately I will kick you out of the land that I've promised you. I will cut you off from fellowship. And so what God establishes here is this system in order to approach him, in order to know him. And it feels like this when we read it. It's this, these repeating rituals, these rituals that are going to go on all the time. Think about it. If you had to kill a goat or a sheep every time you sinned, how many dead animals are there in your life? Lots. Not to just count the, the, the one big one a year where, where everybody's sins are forgiven, but when you're actually wanting to be in relationship with God, when you're actually wanting to be close to Him, you want to be able to come into His presence and experience His glory, which is what we got to do in worship this morning, what we get to do every time we surrender ourselves to Him and just close our eyes and, and say, God, you are so good. We get to do that on a regular basis. But if you wanted to do that as an Israelite, you've got to kill lots of animals. And, and not only have we got to kill animals in these repeating rituals, but we have these imperfect priests. These people who are supposed to be representing us before God that can't even keep their own junk together. Two of them have already gotten killed because they used the wrong lighter. How easy was that to obey? How stupid is it that they didn't? How serious God takes their imperfections. We've got these strict laws in order to walk in purity. I mean, God is concerned deeply about what you eat, about what you wear, about who you hang out with, about what you do with your body. Now, God's standards have never changed. But in Leviticus, and for the Israelites, you had to live by those standards in order to enter his presence. And when you didn't, guess what happened? Something had to die. And that leads us to this, these yearly sacrifices over and 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 over again. Things have to die so you can stay right with God. And how long does your purity last? Well, until your next sin event. And for many of us, if we were just to keep track today, let's walk out of church, keep track of your next sin event. The next time you get angry, and want someone to die. The next time you look at someone with lust. The next time that you think about cheating, lying, stealing. The next time you inflate the story on Facebook so your vacation looks better than it was. Uh, you know, this is sin, right? How long does it take you to get to your next sin? And if you were an Israelite, how many animals have to die by the time you get to your nap this afternoon? just to stay right with God. God takes his holiness seriously. And the apostle Paul, when looking at the law, when looking at what God required of us to be able to be holy and walk with him, he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he looks at the law, he looks at God's holiness and his perfection. He looks at what it takes to stay right with God. All these animals that have to die just so I can stay in a right relationship with God. Who's going to save me from this 
this cycle that repeats over and over and over again. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Now, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. Isn't that funny to, to look and say they're prevented by death from remaining in office? It's like, a lot like presidents, right? They could be president forever except for that nagging, persistent death that gets them all. But because he, Jesus, remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do for their own sins than for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. Paul says, who's going to save me from this cycle of death? where I have to kill an animal to get right, made right with God, and then I die in my sin just so an animal can die so that I can be made right with God in this endless cycle. And the writer of Hebrews says, we have been given this high priest, Jesus Christ, who was perfect and holy and undefiled. And he, as both the perfect high priest offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself, gave himself once for everyone so that we could be made right with God, so that we could come into God's holy presence without fear. The reason you were not struck dead this morning in the middle of the worship song when the presence of God was rich and real was because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Had it not been for the sacrifice of Jesus, when we walked into this room this morning and the presence of God fell on this place, we'd just all be like, bam, done. And rightfully so. Here's what the the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. You see, the book of Leviticus, all of it, it paints this picture in the Old Testament of how God is perfect and holy and wants relationship with us. But we are sinful and frail and broken and live in a world full of death and rebellion against God. And the only way to be able to come into his presence is to constantly sacrifice and give and do good works and try, try, try so that we can be right with him. And it's an endless cycle that results in failure. But God loved us so much that he broke the cycle. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to be the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice So that once for all time, for those who would believe on him as Lord and Savior, we can always come into the presence of God. We can always find forgiveness from sin and purity in Christ Jesus. And so, as we wrap up today, I had more, but we just need to be done. I was going to just tell you lots of things about the law. It all still applies, by the way, in some form or fashion. But thankfully, we don't have to live it to be saved. But because we're saved, we should want to live it. But the thing I want to tell you that is more important than anything else is if you're trying to earn your salvation, if you're trying to live by the law, live by the standards, trying to be a perfect person, you need to understand that you cannot and you are not and you will never be. 
And that's the first thing you have to come to an understanding of. Because that's what Leviticus teaches us. Is even God's perfectly loved and chosen people were imperfect. And couldn't stay in his good graces for the life of them. And had to sacrifice. And his expectations are high. And his holiness is perfect. And none of us can meet his standards on our own. None of us. But he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to be a high priest, to represent him, represent us before him, and bring to God as payment for our sin, as sacrifice to make us holy, to bring us into the presence of God, his very own perfect and sinless life. And that's the big picture of Leviticus. It's what sets the stage for redemption in Christ Jesus. Helping us to understand God's perfect holiness and our complete failure on our own. And that only with a perfect sacrifice provided by a loving God, only through that can any of us be in a right relationship with God and have any kind of certainty in our acceptance today and our eternal life with him. And so this morning, if you're trying to sacrifice anything else in order to earn God's favor, if you're trying to do good works, if you're trying to, you're thinking, hey, I'm good enough, I'm there on my own, it's all a lie. You're not, you can't, you'll never be. But when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your high priest and perfect sacrifice, then you will find this constant forgiveness, and covering for sin that will allow you the perfect opportunity to enter into the presence of God at any moment, all the time, right before him. So, trust Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Leviticus is pointing us to, even as we understand God's expectations for his people. If you would, let's close in prayer as our worship team comes forward. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the book of Leviticus, how it reveals to us your holiness, how it reveals to us that none of us are ever going to be good enough on our own, how it reveals to us our need for your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our high priest. We thank you for being so perfect and holy and without blemish. We thank you for giving of yourself as our sacrifice for sin. No longer do we have to sacrifice lambs and goats and bulls and rams in order to be forgiven. But instead, you made that sacrifice once for all of us for all time. So that anyone who would believe on you might be able to come into the presence of the Father and know, know that they are accepted. Know that they are made clean and pure and holy before him. And know that they have life eternal. And so this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that if anyone has never received you as their priest and their sacrifice, that this morning they would consider it seriously. And seek in your word and in your people answers to their questions. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your holiness, God. May we approach you in both fear and trembling and rejoicing because of what you've done for us and who you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
an amazing love that God could take people like us who fall short, who fail, and yet still give of himself and receive us into his arms. Encourage you, this is going to sound weird at first, but as you go through the rest of your day, count the dead sheep and then rejoice in the fact that that price was paid once in Christ Jesus when you've received him as your Lord and Savior. Be aware of his holiness this afternoon. And see how that might change the way that you respond in any given situation. God bless you guys. We'll see you throughout the week in small group stuff. And of course, next Sunday morning, Sunday Bible school and and services, even though it is Labor Day weekend. We're still going to be here. Encourage you to be here as well. God bless you guys. And don't forget your backpacks, kiddos.